This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. So, hi, my name is Jason Kaczewski. I'm the global CEO of Speedmaster. What I love about retail technology is agility. So, the ability to, you know, apply a piece of technology and make massive changes. Welcome everybody to another episode of Fashion Is Your Business. We are live here at the online retailer program in partnership with Nora Network and Fluent Commerce. I am of course your host, Pavan Ball, and today we have a couple new co-hosts with us today. So in replacement of Rob and Mark, we have Paul Wadi from Shopo. What's going on, Paul? Hey, Pavan. How are you? I'm very well. So you guys may have uh, remembered the name Shopo. Uh, from if you haven't purchased from them yet, um, you may remember our uh, episode that was recently published from Shop Talk in Vegas 2018 with Mark Bartse. Yep. Uh, if not, then go back to the archives, check that out. You'll learn all about them. And we also have Tony Forey of Nora Network, and uh, of course, his background is quite extensive with MassMart as well as with Montpurse. Welcome to the show again. Thank Tony. you very much. Pardon. Absolutely. And of course, on to our guest, uh, Jason Kinchevsky. Thank you so much for joining us today. This episode was recorded in Australia and is presented by Fluent Commerce, the leader in smart cloud native omni-channel order management at fluentcommerce.com. You're listening to Fashion Is Your Business, powered by Sennheiser and recorded on location with Pavan Ball, Rob Sanchez, and Mark Rako. And now, here are your hosts. Why don't you give us uh, all basically like a Reader's Digest 30,000 foot view of what Speedmaster is all about and what you're all about? Um, yeah, so I've got a little bit of time, so I'll give you a bit of a background. It started as a typical bricks and mortar. Uh, back in the day, my dad basically just uh, was putting food on the table, so he was building fast car parts and building, building engines and um, breaking things along the way. And back then it was just basically doing his job. To, by today's standards, it's actually, he's an entrepreneur, he's an innovator and all of the cool buzzwords. Back in the day, he was just basically putting food on the table. So um, cut a long story short, most of the products that he manufactured were innovative um, and caught the eye of the American market. Um, and about 20 years ago, almost 18 years ago, we started exporting our privately branded Speedmaster products to the U.S. and have done ever since. Okay, good deal. So let's let's talk about the, I mean, you humbly say that your dad, I mean, we're, we're only here at Innovation. Your dad started something to put food on the table, but you're t talking about a company that now has 300,000 SKUs and a bit of a global pr footprint, partnerships with companies like Pitney Bowes. Can you tell us a little bit about where you are today as Speedmaster? Um, so a couple of awesome things to kind of mention um, on a, you know, statistically, we've won nine SEMA awards in eight years, which has never been done before by people like Ford, GM, uh, and that's in, re in relation to innovation. Uh, so that's like the Oscar of the automotive world. Uh, we've got over five patents, um, 14 SFI approvals, just, you know, like amazing, amazing innovation on the product front. Um, so that's what drives the products themselves. Well, I'd, I'd be interested, actually. It sounds like you guys are doing a lot of R&D. Do, do you put a fair bit of time and resources into R&D? So, ironically, how it all started was, and we do, to answer that, 100% we do. So, what it was is we started here in Australia. So, basically, 
everything was all the R&D, technology, shipping, marketing, the whole wham bam was done here in Australia. And now, because of the global scale, uh, I mean, we're in, we have a uh, you know, fifty thousand square meter, a square foot facility in Sydney and a wow. seventy five thousand square foot <laughs> facility in LA. So what we've done now is we've actually done all our R and D and technology in Sydney. Yep. Um, we ship globally from LA. Uh, and then from China, we ha- unfortunately, 80% of our stuff is manufactured in China. Yeah, sure. Fortunately, unfortunately. Um, and we're actually moving some of that back to Detroit right now. Would, would, are you using um, your own shed there in, in Australia and LA, or are you 3PL? So um, we started 20 years ago, back then, what was classed as 3PL for about yeah. six months. Um, but it only lasted six months because the demand was there. So literally within six months, we actually started in a 5,000 square foot facility. Yeah. We moved to a 20 and now we own and operate a 75,000 square foot facility. So, now, I want to take a quick step back and uh, about this journey of yours. So when did you join the company yourself? Yeah, good question. So it was always um, bricks and mortar um, mm. and it was bricks and mortar and product driven. How many, but what, what's the footprint at this point? Um, so at this point, we're exporting from Australia yeah. Uh, manufacturing in Australia, exporting to... And um, how many retail uh, locations did you have? So, uh, just just the one okay. in Sydney. Um, and I came along in 2003, 2004, and um, was working at the bank at the time, came along and realized that there was a major, major gap in the online environment. At that time, we were still ahead of its time. Online wasn't really, you know, it wasn't really the norm in 2003 sure. and four. And automotive being well behind the mark, so even then it was we were well ahead of automotive. So at that point, when I came in, it was around 2004, 2005, um, and we kind of I came came along and said, "Hey, there is this thing called digital. You know, let's let's give it a shot." So and that was still pretty early, 2003, 2004. I mean, that's when people started getting it right or started trusting e-commerce for the first time. It was that bad that in 2005, eBay Motors Australia didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was actually part of the core foundation to actually build eBay Motors Australia at that time. So what I'd learned in America, I kind of came to Australia and helped build eBay Motors Australia because it didn't even exist. That's how bad it was. Well, let me ask you this then. What, what encouraged you or said, okay, I'm going to leave this um, you know, golden handcuff type of job to work with my dad's one location retail operation in Sydney? So I definitely knew that there was, um, I definitely knew there was an opportunity online. Um, mm. I just, just knew it. Like you I, just felt it. You saw it around. I mean, I don't really want to kind of give any secrets away, but I was yeah. selling stuff on eBay for about five years prior, like everyone has, you know, from their backyard or from That's their early. garage. Yeah. Uh, so in 1999, I was, build, I was buying and selling computers on eBay. So I realized that there was a market there. And while I was working at the bank, I was helping sell secondhand parts on eBay. So I was selling secondhand parts. And ironically, I actually ran out of secondhand parts and realized that, hey, if we start selling new parts, it might work. And, cool. and it did. Wow. Okay. And, and how do you get into the product innovation side of it? Because these are, one, they're not typically sexy products like one finds in the modern uh, online business environment. It's all about fashion and fragrance and images and Instagram. You know, this is not uh, the sexiest unless you're a car fanatic. So true. So the irony is, is that um, innovation comes from interesting areas. And what we've learned early is that my dad's an entrepreneur. So he definitely cuts a lot of corners, definitely starts 20 things, probably finishes two. Um, but we definitely learn by our mistakes. And that's actually the kind of culture that we have in our innovation area. It's definitely not what the kind of culture we have in our 
shipping department because if that's the culture we have, we wouldn't <laughs> ship anything, so that won't work. So the beauty about it is we actually give them the ability to make mistakes. They go there, they make a mistake, uh, and they learn from it, and I think that's actually ingrained in my father, and ironically, that's the best part of the business that he belongs in because if we kind of bring that into other areas of the business, probably wouldn't be where we are today. <laughs> no offense. I was curious, um, so it sounds like online's probably where it's at for you mainly now. There's still a, a bricks and mortar component um, in Sydney. Any wholesale or have you stayed away from wholesale? Good question. I know that we're bouncing around. I'll try my best to kind of, you know, make this a nice smooth conversation. So Speedmaster is a brand and has been wholesaling up until 2012. So we had an online environment, which we were part of e-commerce in Australia from 2005, but we're actually a brand in which we supply to wholesalers and then they go on and go out and sell it or install it in customers' cars. So our market footprint actually has always been wholesale business. Bricks and mortar, wholesale, from my DC to your DC, I actually only realized we started the eBay business model in Australia because that's what I had passion for. And when we allude to the conversation, when we move to the second phase of my position in 2013, then, you'll, then we'll kind of get to understanding that America up until 2013 was still 97% wholesale business. Um, and it's at that point that we moved to an online business model in America, which we'll talk about all the issues about cross-border trade, um, all the issues about R&D, shipping, yeah. and all those sorts of things. Yeah, cool. But it was wholesale business. Yeah. Yeah. In uh, 93, oh, sorry, 93, 2003, 2004, when you first started uh, the e-commerce project, I mean, that was a time where I think websites were costing on the e-commerce side hundreds of thousands of dollars. This wasn't like a Shopify plus widget that you just drop into you know, a, a WordPress site. I mean, how did you manage uh, the early stage developments of this, of this company? Uh, ironically, I think uh, an entre entrepreneurial mindset uh, can be applied at any time frame. And back then there was this thing called, I think it was uh, OpenCart. It was a free... It was a $129 website that you can buy a $50 <laughs> skin. And we built our website from that. Um, wow. Because at that time, that, there wasn't a high expectation for websites. Because the only thing that was available was a $100,000 solution from a, a high-end provider. So at that point, that worked. Um, and even still to this very day, if you kind of turn over enough rocks, if you actually make the right connections with the right vendors and suppliers, you will get the deal that you're looking for. And you're dead right. It was tough. So I actually had to take that upon myself to build a website from scratch. Excellent. So I think this is a perfect time to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a lot about what goes on. These gentlemen in front of me have all have extensive experience with international expansion. So we're going to learn a little bit more into the mindset that goes behind that, especially when dealing with expanding out from a country. Well, Australia is very unique. So not a country like Australia, but Australia itself. Uh, when we're back, more with Fashion Is Your Business here at Online Retailer with Anora Network and Fluent Commerce. Hey, hope you're enjoying these recordings from Online Retailer. Uh, surely enjoyed being out there in Sydney and connecting with the retail environments out there. So it's exciting to bring you these insights. I uh, wanted to take a moment to thank our partner uh, for bringing us out to Online Retailer, which is, of course, Nora and Fluent Commerce. A little bit about Fluent Commerce. They are the leader in smart cloud-native omni-channel order management. 
What does that mean? Uh, They help businesses be faster and more convenient to shop with by giving them a single view of their inventory across all channels and the ability to automatically route orders to distribution centers or store locations depending on stock location, customer proximity, and shipping rates. So really cool stuff. They actually have some unbelievable clients such as uh, Samsung, French Connection, JD Sports, Top Shop, and a ton of other brands that you probably have heard of. Um, Learn more about Fluent Commerce. Um, and what they can do for your company over at fluentcommerce.com. That's F-L-U-E-N-T commerce.com. So uh, an obvious and interesting question for me and a very difficult one to deal with is how do you pitch up in an international market from a small country like Australia and hope to win? And how do you balance the opportunity that that brings with the risk it brings because there have been many attempts to internationalize businesses and as many failures. That is a great question. And like I alluded to earlier, it's actually something that I'm passionate about and I actually talk about that people don't really take seriously until it happens to them. You know, it's that thing about don't put your hand in the fire and you actually will do it until you, you'll continue to, you will do it until, yeah. you, you know, until you get burnt. One of the things that, to answer that, let me start with this. No one internationally will let you coexist. You just can't turn up and, like you said, pitch a tent and coexist. It doesn't work like that. The way we did it was a two-pronged approach. One was to fly under the radar um, and also turn up. My father had deep pockets and broad shoulders. They're the only way to do it. Because a couple of things. A, um, Americans, Americans, for example, even uh, in Asian countries... You're talking about taking market share, and that doesn't go down smoothly with anyone, <laughs> let's face it. So we went in under the radar. We kind of established, um, you know, key industry connections to make sure that we, you know, had some, you know, had to make sure that the dust settled and we kind of weren't just showing up on a limb and, you know, and trying to take on the biggest players. You know, it might work when Kogan takes on maybe Jerry Harvey, but we're kind of coexisting in the same country. But when you're kind of skipping continent and going to another country, you just can't take on Walmart and say, hey, we're here. Well, over there, it's what, Autobarn and Pep Boys, right? Or the... Exactly right. So I'll give you a prime example. Uh, we've been there 15 years now, and in the first 10 years, we got sued 30 times. That's just the way they do business. Right? 100%. And ironically, I only found out probably about three or four years ago the reason why they were suing us wasn't actually the legal department. It was actually the marketing department. They actually had marketing budget put aside so they could sue us to kind of slow us to down. Stall, yeah, yeah slow it. down and disrupt. That's it. So it comes back to that original argument of we had deep pockets, broad shoulders, and we said, hey, we're here to stay. And we had enough runway to hang in there. But I can tell you, when you're talking about a, a lawsuit at 50000 here, 100000 there, slows you down for a month, slows you down for three months... That's actually a marketing budget for them. So whilst we're slowing down, they've, they've continued to have market share. So that's the best question anyone can ask is it's not just as easy as you feel like just turning up pitching a tent. So again, my advice would be, again, uh, fly under the radar, make the right connectivity, let the dust settle, and make sure you have deep pockets and broad shoulders straight out. Are you now working with these suppliers as well in these same kind of networks of distribution? Um, we are now. Uh, finally, after yeah, 15 years. Yeah. Uh, ironically, the hardest part is is that we had to go to America, 
try to coexist, which that didn't, they, didn't, they didn't allow that. So we actually had to turn around and, act and prove to them that we were actually better than them at what they do. And only after winning nine SEMA awards or nine Grammy awards and having five patents and acting like, hey, we're not going away. We're here to stay. And if you don't want to coexist, we're actually going to do it better than you. Then they started taking us seriously and actually started kind of almost taking us under their wing, saying, hey, what are you actually doing? You guys haven't been nowhere near as long in business as we have. What is it that you're actually doing? What's your innovation about? What is your business about? And that was the only way they took us seriously. So... And what prompted the U.S., uh, other than the fact that, obviously, it's a huge market? Is it their love of cars, their love of building cars in the backyard, souping cars up? So, um, actually, ironically, um, it was – if, if I look back and say to you, it made sense, it did. But at that time, it was just more so the fact that there was a demand there. We didn't just turn up to America saying, hey, there's 30, 27 million people in Australia. There's 300 million people in America. It makes sense because we're going to grow tenfold. We actually went there because there was a demand. We didn't actually go there because we were going there for an opportunity because that would have been probably the wrong thing to do. So. And how do you think about other international markets? Or is that not something that's on your horizon or not something you want to talk about? Um, yeah, and I'm open about that. Uh, probably not three years ago. So, unfortunately... Um, the Arab and Asian markets aren't really typical muscle car fanatics. So what we've, what we've done at Speedmaster is we've repositioned our brand to actually manufacturing vehicles, manufacturing muscle cars. Wow. So people like Jay Leno, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, they're actually having all these TV shows about coffees and cars and all the rest where they're driving all these beautiful vintage cars. So we've actually just built two vintage cars uh, from scratch, uh, one of them being a, a replica of a $90 million GT uh, Shelby Daytona. Um, and we're actually exporting those to the Arab and Asian markets. That's, the, that's our prop value proposition to Who those markets. Who gets to drive those around? Uh, me sometimes. Nice. <laughs> but I don't want to smash it. Like the last one we sold to an Arab prince for half a million dollars. So, yeah. you know, it's not something I really want to be driving around too much. But, yeah, I do get to drive it around the car park a couple of times. Let me know if you have anything going on tomorrow. <laughs> I have a full day that's open here in Sydney before I head out. So. There you go. There you go. <laughs> So, yeah, that's yeah, cool. Every kid's dream, eh, to build and drive fast cars. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Jason, I'd, I'd be interested. I think one of the challenges we face as Australian retailers is this challenge of distance. We're so far from some of these markets that you're talking about. And it sounds like you're dealing with some products that have got a bit of weight, a bit of volume behind them. Has that been a challenge? And how are some of the ways that you've kind of overcome the challenge of distance and the cost of logistics? So... I guess um, originally when everyone was Australian-made, it was tough um, because obviously, you know, there isn't much coming in and out of Australia. Yeah. So that was tough. Um, seeing that 80% of the stuff is, is, is Chinese-made at the moment, there is a lot of logistics uh, movement back and forth from right. the two countries. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty straightforward for us. Um, and it's going to be even easier, hopefully, in the coming years if we do move to back to America, maybe Detroit or something like that. Mm. But it, it, it's, it's not a common, uncommon movement. You know, obviously, you know, in, in retail and fashion, you know, people like places like Turkey and, you know, those other, you know, even uh, Israel and all these other places that are kind of developing all these beautiful um, manufacturing areas might not be as common. Um, but as for China and those movements, very common. So for us, it's very simple. Not much change there. Mm, interesting. I mean, Paul, how have you guys looked at international expansion? You guys are in a huge footprint now, about 80 different countries. Yeah, we're in about 80 different countries. Export makes up about 30% of our growth, um, of, of our revenue each year. But 
It's it's fairly similar, I think, to, to what Jason's saying. So we run a um, we run a multi warehouse program. So we've got a couple of warehouses. Again, we're just moving into our own shed in Sydney. Got a five thousand square meter footprint there. Um, we've got a three PL in LA that we're distributing out of. I think probably for us the future is Hong Kong or, or China and having a, a, a warehouse there as well. So the, the the very basic idea behind what we do is to lease cost throughout the product. So I mean the whole it's it's the Amazon idea of put the stock where the customer is, and that's super hard because we're shipping to eighty countries. So some of the you know, freight is a big big cost for us. But we're trying to get smarter about where we hold stock and and how many warehouses we have, and you know just minimise costs, speed up delivery by holding product closer to the customer. I mean that's obviously easier said than done, but yeah, that's sure. broadly speaking our strategy. Well, let me ask you both this. Um, in hindsight, right, if for, for any of those folks that are listening that are having a fast-paced kind of adoption and growth happening with their, their company and they're looking towards international expansion, what are some of the things that you've tripped up on that you've learned along the way that you could pass and say, look, this is probably what I would look into first and prioritize rather the other thing? I, I think one of the first mistakes I made about 10 years ago when I was in the, in the footwear trade, so I, was, um, I landed ASOS as a, as a client I was pretty excited. They placed a pretty big order. Um, had no idea how to get it into them. They, they wanted it free in store, you know, freight in store. I thought, yeah, I just took the order and I was like, I'll work the rest out later. So we manufactured in China. We, we distributed. Uh, we, get, we, we were shipping at that point to South Africa and all over the world. So this container went into ASOS, hit the port, and we were just slugged with a massive tax and duties bill, which I had no, no idea of how to even pay. Um, so I think... Fast forward 10 years, we're still facing the same problems, taxes and duties. I mean, the thresholds for duties in, in, the, in Europe, for instance, are so low that basically every single one of our parcels is going to get stopped for, um, for tax or duties. And that makes for a very poor user experience. So we're, we're combating that through building our own duty calculator. There are other guys out there like Pitney Bowes who do that quite well, I think. Um, but they're the same challenges. Um, we're just trying to evolve and get, get better at them. And how about on your side? Um, on our front, obviously, yeah, we fail fast all the time. So at the end of the day, you know, there's so many options right now that weren't available back then, 3PL options. Um, even right now, there's like an Airbnb for facilities. So fail fast, there's a lot of options to fail fast. Back in the day, was there wasn't really many options. Um, and again, we're a different business model. We're a family-owned business. So at the end of the day, we're kind of like McDonald's. The more assets we have, the better it is for us. You know, at the end of the day, if we are buying property, it's, it becomes part of an asset portfolio. So on a company that's probably, you know, growing fast and not too, not too worried about an underlining asset base, yeah, fail fast and use 3PL and use different solutions. So. Well, regarding graduating from a 3PL to your own, um, what you call a shed, which I love, um, <laughs> you know, what are some of those key triggers that you were looking for that said, okay, this makes complete business sense to now move across from 3PL to our own <clears throat> organized and managed uh, warehouse facility? Uh, what were you looking for in there? And how did that, how does, like what type of margin difference are we looking at? Yeah, so um, again, it's always a tipping point, which is great. So at the end of the day, you know what it costs to ship by 3PL. And then as soon as you get to the tipping point, you know what it costs to um, actually run your own facility. Give you a prime example. Going back to that, I want to kind of make sure that we go back to a data-driven approach. If we can lead back into that. Sure. Sorry. But um, back to that question. Um, for example, 65% of our, our items are shipped to the East Coast. So at that tipping point, we know that 
opening of facilities, you know, $2 million, uh, X amount of staff, and that 65% of our uh, freight bill, we're at the tipping point of, hey, yep, we can open, open up a th- our own facility in that part sure. of the country. So that's that part. And just coming in from the side here, I think an interesting side, side issue that comes to the fore is your background training in banking, although it may sound a world away from what you do now, you learn very rigorous disciplines, how to measure things, how to quantify them, how to identify hurdle rates for success, how to calculate returns, how to manage cash flows. And in your conversation, I hear you saying these things, you know that 65% is a tipping point. Yep. And I think just to bring it back to online, I think that's where a lot of online businesses come unstuck. They get excited about the idea. It's very sexy, a lot of smoke and mirrors, mm-hmm. but often no substance and no solid base on which to build. And then sort of two, three years down the line, they've thrown money at it, thrown money at it, and they've lost their boots. And they just keep tapping money, tapping money. So it's great to hear that there are businesses out there that have substance, understand the economics, and apply them to their businesses. And not, I mean, they're not, it's not like they're compromising their businesses at all by doing it. So well done. Thank you. And again, that's actually, remember I mentioned before you he, before he, he spoke about that, the word I mentioned was data. One thing I learned was making sure that your data is accurate because a lot of people will fly for about five years, grow really, really fast and actually not have a good grasp of the data and actually whether they're making money, whether they're not and exactly what, what Tony led to, which is actually understanding where you're going so that way you can make educated decisions because then they, yeah, the money might be coming in, money might be going out, but then you don't understand the tipping points. You don't actually understand where to go from here, what markets to enter, what, what facilities to open, those sorts of things. Are you using a proprietary dashboard or are you um, licensing out a, a data solution? 100%. So we, can't do, we, definitely, we definitely can't do that ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're very, very blessed that we're connected with Oracle for that. Mm-hmm. We were originally with Hybris, um, SAP Hybris, but Oracle came on board to do a global case study of Speedmaster. Mm-hmm. And they actually felt that they um, could facilitate that, and they did. Great. Nailed it. So I'm very proud to say that um, that helped a lot. There's a wonderful adage, Pavan, that says, uh, <laughs> what is the language of business? Numbers. <laughs> and he talks about the data. But that's exactly it. Follow the data, follow the numbers, and you'll find credibility. Follow the smoke and mirrors. It's a sure road to pain and agony. I can't think of a better way to go into the last and final segment than this. Uh, When we come back, uh, more with Jason Kinchevsky, and we're going to be on off-the-grid questions where we're going to learn more about him uh, versus uh, the business. You know where you should be? You should be at Founder Maid's Consumer Discovery Show in Santa Monica, California on October 4th. Buyers, press, and industry professionals from around the country attend to connect and make deals with the 100 leading consumer brands in beauty, wellness, and food. Whether consumer products are your career, your passion, or something you want to learn more about, Join in on October 4th to meet the most exciting consumer brands on the market. And get this, you can use code CDS Mouth Media for 25% off your ticket at consumerdiscoveryshow.com. Again, that's CDS Mouth Media at consumerdiscoveryshow.com. 
Welcome back to the show. It is time for Off the Grid Questions and um, the way that we choose the order. So, gents, you're not familiar with this yet, but I had shipped in this beautiful wheel of Grid Destiny from, uh, from New York City with us. Massive, massive wheel. It'll take a little bit of a getting used to, to to spin this guy, see if the humidity affects it over here. Um, and I'll go ahead and give that a spin. And uh, the first person it falls on to ask a question is uh, Tony. Thanks, Pavan. <laughs> Thanks the wheel. Thank the wheel, not me. Thank you, Will. Um, and I guess the wheel's appropriate given we're talking about automobiles. So maybe my question is kind of a little bit of an obvious and boring one. Given you're involved in uh, the automotive industry and you look quite zooty and zappy, what do you drive? Uh, that is the worst question anyone could ask me. So ironically, we build muscle cars, American muscle cars. Um, so... I went out and bought a car that I can't work on because obviously if I can work on it, it'll never work. We'll never <laughs> fix it. Um, so I actually, yeah, I hate to say this, but I drive a Ferrari. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Nothing wrong with a Ferrari. As I said earlier, you buy Italian for looks and you buy German for performance. <laughs> so sorry about the performance. That's I'm fine. a German car fan. That's fine. Well, I've got I'll an, drive I, the other one. I've got a C-Class AMG too, if that helps. But anyway. But yeah. Excellent. And uh, next up, we'll uh, spin the wheel again. And uh, it comes uh, comes on to me. So I will keep on the car theme, uh, but a, a similar but different question in this uh, capacity. So going back to your childhood, um, you know, I always find that there's always clues from like early stage growth that relate to what you're doing. And it's like exactly your purpose driven, right? Like you're here for a reason and you're doing what you're doing because of these cues and, and interests that you had as a kid. Um, looking back on moments or... Um, interests, whatever it might be, is there something that you could pinpoint that says, yes, this is exactly what I should be doing and this makes complete sense? So I'm an unfair case for this question because I was a problem child. Mm -hmm. So Stealing cars? Yeah. <laughs> that too. Um, but I was a problem child. So every school holidays, I'd be stuck going to work with my dad. Mm -hmm. Every weekend, I'd be going stuck working with my dad. So I was with my dad 24-7. So, obviously, subconsciously, I picked up how to sell. I picked up how to negotiate. I picked up all the front counter movements and how to, you know, uh, negotiate and sell. So, I'm, unfortunately, I'm an unfair advantage when it comes to that because I was a middle child, a uh, little bit hyperactive, and I was stuck working with Dad for the first 20 years of my life. So, yeah, definitely there was Full plenty, circle then. plenty of cues there to yeah. get me to line up with his business here. Yeah. Excellent. And uh, the last and uh, meaningless spin of this wheel uh, falls on... Um, Paul, it's up to you, man. <laughs> Thanks, Parvin. Yeah. yeah, Jason, you've mentioned... I didn't mean that you were meaningless. No, I, the, just yeah, the spin, the, the was, spin meaningless. was meaningless. <laughs> I, I got that. Yeah. I got that. Yeah, Jason, I'd be curious. Um, your father founded the business. You, you worked with him pretty closely. Any other family involved in the business? Or, and how was it working with family? Yeah, good, great question. So um, I have an older sister who... Um, runs a very successful business on her own, so she didn't need any of our help. Um, and I have a younger brother uh, who actually finished his MBA, came to us for about four years, worked in the business for about four years, but unfortunately, too many bosses, uh, too many chiefs, not enough Indians, <laughs> and 
stepped out and has now moved into augmented reality, which is also a very, very uh, impactful uh, vertical. So yeah, at the moment, it's just me and my dad. And ironically, because the business has become very, very technology-based, um, yeah, I'm stuck doing most of the work now. So yeah, I had a lot of help from my dad, a lot of help from my brother, but effectively, the rest is on me at the yeah. moment. But, yeah. Good nice. deal. And now, uh, Jason, real quick, who are you looking to connect with these days? What type of folks? So understanding that there's a B2B audience, what type of folks are you looking to connect with and what's the best way to contact you? Um, so at the end of the day, um, we always run our own race. So what we try to do is we try to lead by example. Um, we tr we're building new and fascinating cars. We're breaking as many records as we can, winning as many as awards as we can. So if you're out there and you kind of go, oh, shit, I actually like what they're doing, I actually want to maybe build a car that might one day, Speedmaster might build a car one day that is autonomous, that will be flying because we will move into that in the next 15, 20 years. That's the people that we want to kind of go, yeah, I'd love to give it a go. I'm not going to say that we're, you know, uh, Tesla or, or Apple. Uh, we're definitely a little bit more rough around the edges, but for that, we're a lot more agile too. So we make, you know, make a lot more, lot more, uh, agile decision making in that front so yeah it's people who want to actually just kind of be a little bit hyperactive and go hey let's see how far we can push something you know what i mean excellent and what's the best way to follow your work the company's work and uh, maybe to connect with you um so yeah um obviously we're on facebook um we have our website we're on facebook um me personally i'm on linkedin um also have a instagram account it's a personal instagram account so you'll get to see the highs and lows of my life but mm -hmm. speedmaster is um very social through facebook though. Okay, so Speedmaster on Facebook. Uh, the website is speedmaster.com.au or no? Uh, so speedmaster79.com, um, mm -hmm. and we own the AU site as well, 79 being adding the credibility to the length of time that we've been around. So speedmaster79.com. Okay. And your Instagram is? Is I for Indigo, Jason Ken I for Indigo. Perfect, good deal. Jason, thank you so much for being uh, on the show today. We really <laughs> appreciated uh, your participation and uh, can't wait to uh, continue to follow your, your growth and uh, and projects. Thank you so much. And obviously, thank you for everyone for all the testing questions. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, for my co-host, uh, Tony. Uh, you're welcome. And uh, he speaks about ADD in the past tense, but I can see it's definitely not past tense <laughs> and, as, uh, as a fellow struggler. <laughs> and for Mr. Paul Wadi. Yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Appreciate it, Pavin. And for myself, Pavin, uh, it's been a pleasure. And we'll catch you next time. Thank you. <laughs> This has been Fashion Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for the show or to become a sponsor, email us at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Fashion Biz Show. That's Fashion B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, fashionisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. This is your announcer, Peter Coleman. Thanks for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.